fancy name I could give to the message besides just Church of Ephesus. Um, you know, but all, all those fancy names and, and that are all very cliche, like the one that most preachers use is you've lost that loving feeling. You know, I thought, that's ah, just a little too cliche. Um, come Friday, though, my mind was no longer occupied on what to call the message, but actually having a message. I had finished most of it on Wednesday. I was off on Thursday. I came in Friday morning and Microsoft Word crashed on me which is not too unusual. Microsoft tends to do stuff like that. I went to open up the message and found all that was left was the title. It did not auto-save like it was supposed to. It didn't save every time I hit save, every 20 minutes, and I had nothing. So on Friday, we were worried about just trying to reconstruct the message and not come up with a fancy name. Um, So the church in Ephesus, that's our title tonight. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The New England, New England, New English translation puts it this way. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because the reality is that Jesus is saying these words to every church. And he says that to us here this evening. The words that were written to the church in Ephesus are written to us. He who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the church. And as we continue this evening and work through these letters and and then ultimately the rest of the book of Revelation, let's not just blow off what Jesus is saying here. Let's not just walk around and say, hey, I've got more knowledge about the book of the Revelation. I know more what's going to happen in the end times. For those same words are given to us as a warning and a promise as well. So he who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says. Let's pray. Our great God, we do thank you. We thank you for entrusting to us your word. We thank you for uh, these letters that are written to these churches, but are also here for us to read and and here for our instruction, here for our edification, and, and here for our rebuke. 
Holy Spirit, we ask that this evening you would do what only you can do in our hearts and and that you would speak to us through your word. Father, I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way and allow what your word says to speak to our hearts. That you might make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, that you may help us to love you more, to love others more, and that you might be pleased with us. For I pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So as we begin looking at this letter to the church in Ephesus, what do we know about Ephesus? Some background stuff. First, we know that Ephesus was a major city in Asia Minor. It's part of modern-day Turkey. You can see up here on the map that it is a seaport city, right there on the coast, making it a very, very important city because a lot of trade and commerce moved throughout the city. It's also the location of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis. We know that the Apostle Paul visited Ephesus around 53 A.D. That's about 30 to 40 years before John writes these words to the same church. We know that Paul had a major impact in Ephesus. We also know that other people were involved in the church at Ephesus. In fact, we know that Timothy was instructed by Paul in 1 Timothy 1.3 to stay in Ephesus and to pastor or shepherd the church there. And so it's to this church, this very important church, in a very important place, in a very important city, with many of our founding fathers, if you will, of the faith who are involved in it. It's to this church, located here in Ephesus, that we read verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The words of him. We know that this refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. The New American Standard and and Holman Christian both start this way. The, The one who holds. The one. The NET starts it off this way. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one. If we go back and look at the original Greek, it reads this way. These things says, these things says the one. The expression tade legii occurs eight times in the New Testament, seven of which are right here in Revelation chapter two to three. The pronoun is used to add add a sense of, of solemnness to the prophetic utterance that follows. And so this Greek phrase, tade legii, formula in the New Testament derives from the Old Testament, where it was used to introduce a prophetic utterance. Thus the translation, this is the solemn pronouncement of, is very much in keeping with Old Testament connotations of this expression. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has the same phrase about 350 times with nearly 320 of them having the Lord or Yahweh as the subject. And so as we look at this, we we, we get this sense that this is a very solemn pronouncement of the one of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as John uses such an expression, and he uses it seven times 
here with the risen Christ as a speaker. He's likely trying to imply that, that there is something of Christ's sovereignty and deity involved in all of this. He's making a point of who Jesus is. He is the one. He has a firm grasp on these churches, and he, and he walks among them. Keep your finger here in Revelation, but, but turn back to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the church in Ephesus, is once again talking about Christ and his position and how he relates to the church. And in Ephesians 5, 22 to 27, we read this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. As we look at this passage and we look at the way that Christ relates to the church, we understand that he is the head of the church and that he loves us, that he loved the church so much that he gave his life for it, to sanctify her, to cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Christ loves the church. The church isn't just some building. It's not even some meeting that happens uh, once or twice a week. It is the bride of Christ. And he has a deep, deep love for her. And he is present in her. And he walks amongst her. In fact, he is so intimately a part of the church that he uses the marriage, or, or the, the illustration of marriage as a picture of his love for the church. He desires to be a part and to see it working well and doing what's supposed to do for what? For his glory. For his name. And we remember that he is sovereign. He not just loves the church, but he's sovereign. We saw this back in chapter 1 of Revelation, which we've been looking at in past weeks. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you, and peace from him who is, who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Not only does Jesus love the church, 
but, but we understand that he is sovereign and it is the sovereign Jesus that is speaking here to the church in Ephesus. He is the one who was and is to come. He is the one who is seated on the throne. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of kings on earth and isn't that good to remember in a day and time like this. When we watch what's going around in the world, what's going on, we rest in the assurance that that he is the ruler of kings on earth. When we look at our own political landscape, when we sit here and try and figure out what are we going to do in November, we remember that he is the ruler of kings on earth. And it is he alone who puts them into place and into power, and he alone who takes them out. And we rest in his sovereignty that way. He loved us. He freed us from our sins with his blood. He made us a kingdom. He made us priests to his God and Father. And it is to him and him alone that all glory and dominion are given forever and ever. And it's he who is the one coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He is the Alpha He is the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty, the Sovereign One. This is the God, this is the Jesus, speaking to these folks in the church of Ephesus. And he says in verse 2, I know, I know. Let's never forget that he knows what's going on. So this very Jesus who walks among the church and loves her so deeply and knows her better than anyone says to this church that she is doing some things very well and he knows that. He has a commendation for her. Look at what it says in verses 2 to 3. It says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He commends the church for several things. One, um, they are working very hard. These guys have every ministry well-staffed. The pastor of Christian Ed isn't pleading for help for VBS every week leading up to VBS. They're doing their thing. They're working hard. There's no lack of help in any area. They're working hard doing the work of the ministry. They did it right. right, They've patiently endured. Patiently enduring everything that's going on. They've persisted. They haven't grown weary in doing well and doing good. They, They stood for truth. They didn't put up with those who were evil. They were doing right. They identified false teachers and doctrine. They kept a close eye on doctrine and teaching to keep its purity. They've endured much for his name's sake, and they've persisted well. And this is really good stuff. This is what they're supposed to be doing. As we move down to verse 6, we notice that they're also commended for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about this group other than the surmise that that their sect or or group 
uh, that, of Christians that taught that Christians could still engage in idolatry and immoral behavior as part of their worship. And so this church is applauded for hating the practices that are promoted by this group. Again, good stuff. We would look at a church like this and say, yeah, they've got it all together because they're commended for doing some really good things here. I think there's a lot that we as the American church can and should learn from the Ephesian church. We need to be doing these things. Then we get to verse 4. And after listing all of these things that are so great about what they're doing, the things that Jesus wants to see the church doing, we read the word, but. But. We all hate it when we hear that word, don't we? Honey, I really love you, but. Oh boy, what am I doing wrong? All right. We say it to our kids all the time. You know, we commend somebody for doing something, but there's still a flaw. There's still a problem. And Jesus throws that word out there. And he says, you've done all this good stuff, and I commend you for it. But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love, or love you first had. It's interesting. I, I always enjoy how different versions put things in. And the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard both use the word abandoned. Uh, the NIV, if you still have that, or if you remember, uses the word forsaken. You've forsaken your first love. Uh, the New American Standard Version said left. The NET says departed. The Greek word that's used here is used for the word of div- word divorce. the, The imagery is very strong. The picture Jesus is painting is a very powerful one. And what, what he's saying is, is, is that they have, they have divorced themselves from their first love. Departed, forsaken, abandoned. The word implies an intentional act of walking out or away from something. Not something that was accidental. He's saying, you have intentionally abandoned, walked away from, departed from, left your first love. You didn't just fall out of love. You didn't just kind of get lazy and, 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 and kind of lukewarm in it, and maybe the, the butterflies and the fuzzy feelings that were there at first aren't there anymore. Now he's saying, you've turned your back 180 degrees, and you've abandoned or departed from it. So what does Jesus mean by your first love? Some will say that it means that they lost their deep love for God. And there's certainly evidence for that as we look at the rest of the letters here. Others argue that it means that these people lost their love for each other. That they were no longer loving each other as they should, as they once did. That they were arguing, bickering, gossiping, complaining about each other. Most scholars and and theologians that I've read as I've studied this say that it was probably a both and. It probably wasn't either. The first love talked about here refers to both their love for God and their love for each other. We know from Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, 
right, that, that Jesus doesn't separate the two. So it makes sense here in this passage that Jesus would not be separating the two. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, 29 to 31. You remember the story well, right? One of the scribes or or teachers of the law, rather, comes up and says to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered and said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I would guess that the teacher of the law would have thought that was going to be the end of his answer. But then Jesus goes on and says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says one of the most intriguing things to me in all of scripture. He says there is no commandment, commandment, singular, greater than these, these being plural. And in this moment, we see Jesus here bringing these two commandments together into one, making them completely inseparable. And what he's saying is that we cannot claim to love God if we don't love each other. They cannot be separated. They will always be together. And so as we look at what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation, when he tells them that they've abandoned their first love, What he's saying is that they've walked away from loving God and each other the way they once did. The way that they were supposed to love him and the way they were supposed to love each other. What's really amazing is that this stands in stark contrast to what this church was commended for just 30 years earlier. When the Apostle Paul was writing in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 16 and said this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Just 30 years earlier, These same people were commended for their heart and demonstration of love toward God and to each other. 30 years later, they've intentionally walked away from loving the way that they used to and were supposed to. We think about these are basically second generation Christians in the church of Ephesus at this point. 30 years removed from when Paul was talking to the church. And during those 30 years, they retained purity of doctrine. They retained purity of life. They've maintained a high level of service. But now they're found to be lacking in being deeply devoted to God and each other in real genuine love. Orthodoxy, biblical knowledge, standing for what's right in service are not enough. Jesus makes that clear in this message, or in this passage. J.I. Packer, author of the famous book, Knowing God, says this, 
He says, many of us Western evangelicals can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. And yet the fruit of personal experience of God often proves rare among us. Say that again. Many of us Western evangelicals can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. Yet the fruit of personal experience of God often proves rare among us. See, it wasn't about what they knew or what they did. They knew all the right stuff. And they were doing the stuff. The problem was their love, or better yet, a lack of love. So what does Jesus say the solution is? We get to verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, do the works you did at first, or return. Remember, think back to the way it used to be when you were loving well. Remember what it really was like when you fell in love with Jesus, when you first started to follow him, when when there was nothing that you wanted to do more than to spend time with him, spend time hearing from him and hear, spend time talking with him. Remember what that was like. Remember what it was like when you first came to know Jesus and you loved everybody around you in the church. Remember when you didn't have bad feelings towards everybody. Remember what it was like to to realize that these are your brothers and sisters because of Jesus Christ. Remember what it was like to pray for them and to love them, to encourage them, to hold them up. Remember. Then repent. Do the works you did at first. And return. Repent. Turn 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. You remember what it is that it was like when you first came to Jesus. Now repent and turn and go the opposite direction. And return there. Choose not to continue in the direction of not loving anymore. And then do the things you did at first. Jesus' words, after he tells us to remember, repent, and do the works we did at first, his words are, if you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Defined, I will shut you down. Your church will be no more. I will remove your kingdom influence. I will close your doors. And somehow, even though they knew all the right stuff and they were busy doing ministry, in the midst of all that, Jesus tells them that their door was about to be slammed shut for good. And then verse 7. Now, if you've got an ear, you'd better hear and listen. So what do we do with this letter written to the church in Ephesus? We recognize that it doesn't have to end this way. Because he tells us, to the one who conquers, I will grant eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If we return, great. But if we don't, there's a problem. So what do we do with this letter? How does it apply to us today? To each of us individually? To us as a church? 
How could a church like Ephesus go from being commended for its love to just 30, 40 years later being condemned as the one thing, if not immediately corrected, will be the cause of the church being removed from its place? Its doors shut, its gospel influence gone, removed from existence. How's that happen in 30 to 40 years? How might its strengths have been the cause of its failure? What does it look like to really love God, to really love others? I leave us with those questions to really sit and think about. Maybe not just to think about ourselves, but to be talking about with each other. They're deep questions, yet they're very important questions for us. Of all the good and bad characteristics of the church of Ephesus here in Revelation, which ones do we as a church possess? Good and bad. Which ones characterize our lives as a believer and part of this church? Jesus' call is pretty simple. He calls us to remember who he is, that he's the sovereign one, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who loves his church and walks amongst her. He calls us to remember to keep working hard, to stand for truth, to endure, to keep standing against evil, to keep doctrinal purity, to persevere. But he also calls us to remember to love him and to love each other. His call is also to repent if we're not doing that. His call is to repent and turn 180 degrees, to go the opposite direction if we've lost our first love if we're not really loving him and others as we should, if we're not pursuing an ever-deepening intimacy with him daily, if we're not finding ourselves communicating more and more with him every day, and if we're not loving others as we should, if we find ourselves spending more time arguing, bickering, gossiping, complaining about each other than we do serving each other, praying for each other, going out of our way to encourage each other, sacrificing to practice the one another's of Scripture by living in harmony with each other, by accepting one another, by bearing or putting up with one another, by being patient with one another, by being kind to each other, by being tender-hearted, forgiving others, by submitting to each other, by making allowance for each other's faults, by honoring each other, by motivating one another to acts of love, by not speaking evil against one another. And you know the list could go on. So if we're not loving God or loving each other as we should, we're called to repent turn around, and then to return. That's the final call of Jesus here. To do the works that we did at first. To go back and really fall in love with Jesus all over again, and to fall in love with his people all over again. Repentance is demonstrated by a return to doing what we did at first. 
The church of Ephesus no longer exists. They chose not to heed Jesus' words. And so he removed their lampstand. Their influence for Christ vanished. Their doors shut. Gone. Hard letter to hear. Because it causes us to ask the questions, where am I? Where are we as Alden Union Church? My prayer for us is that we may continue to do those things that are good. Those things the Church of Ephesus were commended for doing. That we may stand for truth. That we might always stand for purity of doctrine and sound teaching from God's word. That we would never sway from those things. That we may continue to work hard and, and, and all do our part in the work of the ministry. That there would be nobody just sitting in pews, as John Maxwell used to say, sitting, soaking, and souring. That we would all find a place to exercise our spiritual gifts and our talents. My prayer is that we may all endure hardship and difficulty well. And certainly my prayer is that we may never lose our first love for God and for others. But if we have, or if someday we find that we do, may we be quick to repent and do the things that we did at first. To return to a renewed intimacy with God and a love for each other. God, your love for us, as we really sit and think about it and and ponder it, is so immense that we cannot fully grasp it. Your love for us is is so deep, so intimate, that you would send your son Jesus to die for us. And then that you would use the the illustration of a marriage in our relationship with you. And your love so demonstrates to us the way that we're to love each other, the way that we're to love you. Father, so great is your love. May we be a people that never cease to amaze, be amazed by your love. And would you in us stir up a hunger and a desire to love you well and to love each other well. Father, may we keep this letter to the church of Ephesus always in front of us, always as a mirror examining our lives to make sure that we are not only doing the things that they were commended for and and continuing on in those and doing those well, but that we might continually look to see if we were loving you well, that if we are still in love with you, and that we might reflect on whether we are loving each other well, whether we're so involved with all the pettiness that so often crops up between us. Instead, Father, help us to be overwhelmed with the one another's 
that you lay out for us in your word, that we practice them and, and that we so love each other so deeply. Holy Spirit, continue to, to teach us, to work in our hearts, to reveal to us where we are in this journey of loving you and loving others. Father, cause us to do what we need to do in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.